Blog Talk Radio. Podcast. Welcome. Uh, this is our first episode number of the season, and that is episode nine, number nine, number nine. I can't stop saying that to myself. And without further ado, I will bring on my uh, compadres on this uh, Metzine podcast, and that is first Rich Farago from Connecticut. Rich, welcome. Thank you, Sam. And uh, being a fellow Beatles fanatic, I enjoy every reference to number nine, number nine, number nine. I'm sure we're going to have a revolution of a time tonight, and uh, I'm not as good of a I'm not as good of a of a pun maker as you are, but I have to say, and and I made I, I said it uh, on off air, uh, bad puns are an art, and you sir are a Picasso. So I I have to give you I, I, I bow to you on location here in Colorado, uh, and without further ado, we round out. Uh, the, the, the usual lineup, and that is uh, Michael Collant of uh, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. What's going on, Mike? What's going on? And I'll continue along with this Beatles theme. I just have this popping into my head. If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet. I love that line. There you go. Yep. That is an excellent song. And before we get into an entire Beatles podcast and turn this entire thing uh, upside down, I will say that that was where you knew they mean they meant meant business was a revolver. But anyway, uh, going back to who apparently doesn't mean business, and, and that is Matt Harvey. I, I think there's many many directions we can start with uh, with the Matt Harvey, and, and I think it, it says a lot about the Mets 15 and 8 record that we're starting here. There, there's a lot of positives we can still talk about, but I think Matt Harvey unfortunately has made himself a huge negative problem right now. And, uh, Rich, I don't see there being an end in sight unless Matt Harvey has an attitude change. Yeah, he's turned himself into a lightning rod, Sam. And, um, you know, my thought on that is this. And I maybe I'm on an island with this particular thought process, but this has been my thought process about sports forever. I don't really care if these guys are nice guys or bad guys, I'm not talking about committing crimes. I'm talking about if they're surly or what have you. That has never really bothered me. I've always thought about, you know, what they do on the field. Um, But Harvey's not getting it done on the field, and that's the problem to me. The problem is, you know, he's not effective. He had an over-6 ERA last year, which I believe was, in fact, I'm sure was the highest of any qualifying starting pitcher. Um, he didn't get it done this year in his few starts that he had. He had one good start, and then he had a couple of bad ones. Um, and then he goes ahead and, um, you know, th- th- was kind of a sourpuss about going to the bullpen and wasn't terribly effective. And he points to, well, I had three good innings. Yeah, but, dude, you left the game. Your team was out of the game when you left. So I'm far more concerned about what he's not doing on the field. The surliness, you know, he's not helping himself. Certainly, but but I got to be honest, man. I'm I'm far more worried about the fact that this guy is somebody the Mets need. You know, they have not figured out the rotation as much as it's supposed to be a vaunted pitching staff and, and be the strength of the team. It has not played out that way. Uh, the back end of the rotation is in shambles. And what I need as a Mets fan is I need Matt Harvey 
to be effective uh, as a starter, preferably, and if not out of the bullpen, and he's neither right now. So I can't get past that to worry about his um, his attitude problem. That, that's just the way I see it. Uh, yeah, and I think that it, it's it's basically uh, shows uh, why the Mets are fifteen and eight after starting eleven and one. Uh, clearly, you can see that um, they, a lot a lot of great big hits were covering up the fact that their starting pitching was not having uh, was not going deep in the games. Um, we'll get into specifics because Noah Syndergaard did go uh, deep into today's game. And we can get into that in terms of Mickey Callaway's performance, I think. Um, but linking back to, to Harvey with that, um, the Mets, the, the bullpen hasn't been throwing strikes and the starting pitching hasn't been going deep into games, and that's going, going to be a, a bad combination. And the way they've been losing these series is what concerns us as Mets fans because they've been having leads with uh, many of these games and have been able to take – these last uh, few series, but unfortunately they haven't been able to get the job done. Uh, and and it, you'd be able to get the job done better out of the bullpen if you had a Matt Harvey uh, coming out of the bullpen effectively. Um, here is where I go to where the, where you see Matt Harvey is, is just handling this completely incorrectly. And no, he's, he doesn't have to talk to the press, but in the particular situation that he got himself into – if you want this, if, if what you want is to win a World Series this year with the New York Mets and not have all of this other stuff hovering over your aura uh, and your, this stretch of your career, and especially with free agents, there's other things other than effectiveness that people are going to be looking for, as Anthony Giacomo pointed out. The, the, what, all you have to say, and you, you've probably breezed past it in about 70-second clips, uh, all you have to say is I'm really happy that the guys were able to, uh, you know, I didn't like my performance, but I'm really happy the guys were able to, to rally and we were able to get the win. That's the angle that you that he needed to, to take. And to be perfectly honest, and I'm going to go to you, Mike, with your take on this whole Matt Harvey situation after this, I think that it, I know it's crazy to blame Harvey for this specific series loss, but, uh, you know, you, you might be able to point some fingers in terms of the clubhouse vibe right now because, they can't be liking uh, the aura that's going on. I'm, I'm sure he's got some allies in, in the clubhouse right now, but I can't even imagine what the, you know, some of the, the off-the-cuff remarks going on that, that might even uh, go on, on the record, off the record soon. You, you know what? I'm glad you said that. I think the clubhouse is fine, actually, and Matt Harvey's in the process of getting the cockeye. I think he's the one who, who stands out right now. He's not the one who's playing along, uh, and he's the one who's – you know, going against the grain. Uh, look, this guy's completely, you know, quite literally out of control, emotionally and on the mound, effectively, mechanically. Uh, if he's too high, he's too low. You know, so he's got to find some middle ground. He's got to look himself in the mirror, and, and he's got to regain a little bit of comportment here. You know, there's such thing as being a professional about this. And unfortunately, if you want to stand in front of a microphone in the good days, you have to stand in front of that same microphone in the bad days. It just comes with the territory. You can blow off the media. They will give you leeway, but not in the manner he decided to go about it. Uh, quite frankly, that's just, you know, I'm not going to say it's inexcusable, but we expect more from these guys these days. Uh, the media isn't all over this team like uh, 
flies on a cow patty the way they were when, I don't know, five years ago. Uh, they're a lot more tolerant. They're a lot more nicer in their approach to the players lately. Uh, so really there was no excuse for it. Yeah, he might be frustrated. Uh, I, I see that. You know, I got no problem with that per se. But I'll go back to that word I used, comportment. Look, last year he got suspended, didn't he not? Because he stayed out too late on a Friday night partying, then went playing golf the next morning and was MIA for that Saturday's game. That's irresponsible, you know? And then he wants to make scatological references. Not, what, a week ago? While he was sniveling to the to the media? And I wrote that on the trolley, shameless plug. Strike two. One more incident, and that's the hat trick. Sure enough. We have this. Toss your hat onto the rink. Matt Harvey scores a hat trick. You know, so I don't, I, I don't really want to deal with comportment issues when it comes to him. He's already got enough on his plate to deal with. And I think Bobby Ojeda got it. Uh, I, I think he got it right. The man needs to learn how to pitch. There comes a point in time in, in, in these athletes' careers where they can't re, they can no longer rely on talent and skill. Eventually, you have to master your craft. You have to become a craftsman. You have to be on that mound thinking. And I'll always refer to Tom Seaver. He was the thinking man's pitcher. And through life, I learned more about pitching, listening to him, than I have watching any of these muckety-mucks. So... I really don't know where to go with Harvey. He's obviously not going to be a next year. If he was resigned to leaving, or if he wasn't resigned to leaving before, he's certainly resigned to leaving now. He's never sustained a, a more injurious blow to his ego than with this demotion to the bullpen. You know, all the surgeries that he's, that he's gone through are nothing compared to this demotion. This wrecked him. And we're seeing it. He's acting out. Dummy. But nevertheless, he's gone, and Scott Boris is going to make sure to it. His problem now is he's got to work himself out of this bullpen and prove to Major League Baseball he can be an effective pitcher again. But he's not going to do it with this mindset. Dummy. Good. You know, uh, I, I wonder, Rich, whether the press would take Matt Harvey more seriously or he, if it were from the Bronx, you know. I mean, that, that whole thing seemed to go over well uh, once upon a time, uh, you know, and that guy was from the Bronx. So, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe he just needs a little uh, – that's the type of attitude of Justin he, he, he would be uh, – he needed. It was a little 1992-1993 New York Mets, uh, which I think if he were to do, would immediately get him kicked off the team. Um, but – before asking you about that question, Rich, uh, I will I will go to this. Uh, AJ Ramos is somebody who's very active on Twitter and did not have quite the good performances recently and must have gotten shelled on there. But then came back, didn't delete his account, and had a pretty effective performance today. So I guess with all of that context, everything that we've been talking about, Matt Harvey, do you think? he could be released in the next week or two. Uh, yes, I do. Um, 
And again, I know this is not what you said, Sam, but but it, to me, it goes back to performance on the field. It's amazing how Steve Carlton was an ass to the media, and every of course, it's you know a little bit before my time, the end of his career, you know, kind of was in my my era, but um, but Steve Carlton refused to speak to the media, um, all that stuff. And there are others, you know, George Hendrick from the Cardinals, who was a fantastic player in the early 80s, refused to speak to the media. But, but what's the difference here? The difference is these guys were on top of their game, and everybody, you know, the media might have said, oh, you know, he's not a nice guy and all that stuff, but everybody forgave it. It wasn't a problem. It all comes down to the performance on the field, and so that's where I'll go with your question. Matt Harvey is not performing and has not performed well since the end of 2015. Now, as I read on a very popular blog um, earlier this week, it's not Matt Harvey's fault that he had Tommy John surgery. It's not Matt Harvey's fault that he had thoracic outlet syndrome. These These are things that, you know, I feel sorry for the guy about. But the fact is, at the end of the day, this is a performance business and Matt Harvey is not performing. Sure, the other stuff, the surliness and the, you know, the expletives and stuff like that, they don't help. But look at where the Mets are, to answer your question. The Mets have a lot of bodies on the pitching staff, and they're trying to figure out what to do with these bodies. You have Vargas coming back into the rotation. You've got Matt's got to figure out what to do with him. You've got Wheeler. They don't really have have the time. And, and this is a season that, you know, even though they're fifteen and eight now, they're still off to a good start. This is a season that you don't have time to mess around with people who have six ERAs. You just don't. And especially when these guys are going to be free agents at the end of the year, he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. And you know, you you wonder. I believe what Mike said is true. He's probably not a cancerous person in the clubhouse, but it is a bit of a distraction. You put all that together, and at some point, Sandy has to ask himself. Why in the hell do I have this guy around here? He's not going to be here next year. He's not performing, and he hasn't performed, and he hasn't shown me anything to indicate that he is going to perform. So as a way of you know dealing with some of the numbers issues they have, they have Gesellman and Lugo in the bullpen and all these guys that they have to try to you know figure out and, and find good spots for, Harvey's kind of in the – Harvey and his you know, six-plus ERA, they're, he's in the way right now. So, sure, I could see him being released. I really can And yeah, uh, with with that, I'll I'll go to here uh, first, Mike, and we'll start specific, and then work our way uh, around the topic. Mickey Calloway and uh, the performance he's done, and 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 the decisions he's made regarding that part. Uh, do you like the way that both him and Island, Dave Island, the pitching coach, have handled Matt Harvey so far? Without a doubt, and I'll throw Zach Wheeler into that mix as well. If you remember game five against the Kansas City Royals 2015 World Series, what did Matt Harvey do with Terry Collins? He bullied him and talked him out of taking taking him out of, out of the game. So I like the conviction. You know, I like the rather harsh treatment that Island had for Zach Wheeler when the Mets assigned him to Las Vegas as the team broke camp. And I like this handling of Harvey. I like the conviction you know, the previous regime was wishy-washy. Let's call it for what it was. And I like the conviction. You know, there, there's been there, there, there's been uh, 
There's been no confusion. Everyone knows where Mickey Calloway stands. That's the thing. I'm not saying that Terry Collins didn't make his position, you know, clear, but everyone knows where Calloway stands now, and they, everyone, all the pitchers at least know where Ireland stands, and he has a reputation for being, you know, somewhat of a hard ass. So I like the approach that Ireland had with Zach Wheeler, and I like the approach that Mickey Calloway has with Matt Harvey. I like the conviction, first and foremost. And as far as Harvey, you know, I'm a little teed off at him because, you know, he's not he's not a carpetbagger. He was brought up through our system, and, and he was practically handed the keys to the city. And to turn around and to lash out, I don't know, maybe I'm being too hard, but I, I just think for for someone who came up the way he did through this organization, but, I, you know, what, what am I saying? I'm, I'm a little harsher on the homegrown products. You know, I, I'll leave it with this, and, and maybe after that we'll completely segue to, to Mickey Calloway. Um, I think the worst thing that happened to Matt Harvey was that first Tommy John surgery, and, I mean, he hasn't had two, but the first surgery. But having basically an entire year off as the Dark Knight without the athletic part attached at all. He was just a tabloid guy, and it, it unfortunately it got to his head. And, or at least that's what it seems. And he came back and had this magnificent return where, you know, everybody was so pumped in 2015 and it almost paid off at all the way to the end. And unfortunately that wasn't the way the script ended in 2015. And it doesn't seem to be the way the script is ending unless all of a sudden he's got even more chances than Rafael Montero. Um, but, that that's basically what I, I see as as the biggest issue for Matt Harvey was he didn't handle being the tabloid dark knight without the athletic part attached well. Uh Rich, if, and and I'm I'm kind of curious uh both of your perspectives considering you had kind of some type of playboy guys growing up uh like Joe Namath in the New York area. Um, and, and if you can kind of correlate that, if you will, to to the fact that he got it done in his Hall of Famer. <laughs> well, yeah, Harvey's case at the end of the day, to me, it's still sad because given everything else, you know, his demotion of the bullpen, his attitude and all that, at the end of the day, this guy was ruined by two bad injuries and and to me, that when you think about where he was, you know, he did the uh, the GQ, I think it was, you know, where he had the the robe on or whatever, and he had the Playboy thing going on, dating the supermodels, kind of having the city on a string, and and then along comes, you know, Tommy John surgery, thoracic outlet, and, and he becomes a shell of himself. Now, you, you make a good analogy though, Sam, because if you think about Namath. Um, Namath was the same. You know, he, he took the city by storm, uh, brought the Jets to the Super Bowl, and then he became a shell of himself. His knees were awful. He couldn't move. But he maintained that aura, you know, as a player still. He was still revered. People were, still beloved Joe Namath. And that's where the attitude piece comes in, because while Harvey is not the guy he was in 2013, 2015, it's hard to love Matt Harvey these days. It really is. He doesn't make it easy. 
um, you know, saying things like I'm a starting pitcher and, you know, when asked about the bullpen, that's not the way you endear yourself. You endear yourself by doing things, whatever the organization asks you to do, telling the fans I'm here to win. A lot of the Mets say that. I mean, the Mets are obviously well media coached. A lot of them say, you know, I'll do whatever it takes to help the team win. That's my number one focus, blah, blah, blah. Whether they mean it or not, it's irrelevant. But they say the right things. Harvey says no. <laughs> he doesn't do that. So here's a guy who it's hard for the for the fan base to think fondly of what he gave us, albeit for a very short period of time. And that's where the attitude piece comes in. And, and that's where he's different than a Namath who had a way of maintaining that um, – so I think you raise a good point that that he he paralleled some New York athletes who rose to fame very quickly and did it on and off the field, and he diverted from a lot of those athletes in the sense that he has no staying power whatsoever. But I mean, Namath had more years than than Matt Harvey has under his belt so far. I mean, obviously, in terms of good, right, Mike? Uh, uh, you know, I, I know it's not an exact correlation, but, you know, Matt Harvey kind of, you really almost could say completely fell off the, the map. Well, you, you know what? I'm coming at you from a completely different perspective. Uh, Matt Harvey is just not emotionally prepared for this. Okay, you want to bring up Namath, Lawrence Taylor, Frazier. Those guys were mentally prepared. Uh and mentally resilient. Uh, Matt Harvey is not, and I'm not. I'm not trying to pick on him because he's always been a good guy. I want to make that very clear. He's always been a good guy here. He's always said the right thing. Uh, no matter what he has endured, three surgeries, this, that, and the other. Uh, that's why I'm a little pissed off at him right now. Uh, but you want to bring up those guys, and, and they knew experienced and lived adversity. LT lived adversity. Namath lived adversity. Frazier, all of them, all the greats, but what they had in common was winning. Now, look at the greats in the city's history who haven't won, and then I would suggest look at the relationship they had with the media. Patrick Ewing was beloved, or I should say still is beloved by the city. But his relationship with the media was horrible. And you could bring up a lot of people who just came, who, 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 who just came short. And, and, and look at the relationship they had with the media. You know? Bring up Carlos Beltran, and there's still that little twitch MF fans have, like, ah, oh, damn, that one pitch. Otherwise, he'd be a god in this town. See what I mean? So it's the winners, the non-winners. You're talking about a generation that was a lot more mentally prepared for adversity and who dealt, or I should say lived, in a much tougher non-PC time. Matt Harvey has been coddled his whole professional career, which includes the minor league, minor league, major league. He's been coddled. And, you know, surgery and injury is one kind of adversity. But comportment 
is a completely different kind of adversity. That is uh that is right. It's it's really hard and really sad to to put a finger on it and um yeah, uh you know it, it, it's almost I, I, a cuz like I said, I don't want to pick on the guy. I'm just mad at him. He's always managed to say well, the right he, thing and behave the right way outside of his partying and you know the dark night and his man about town persona. Yeah, you know, I don't care about that as Rich says. What they do in their personal time is you know, their thing. Everyone's entitled to a life. But to lash out like Rich will Rich will keep this one short, but I saw a quote that, that Matt Harvey said, you know, a few years ago I wouldn't have even considered re signing with the Mets and you know, now I, I would or something like that. Uh, it was just like a flash on Twitter to me, but um the way I see that, uh he recognizes it's 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 totally me being cynical about it because it's like he recognizes he's all not all that good anymore and he can probably get a one year deal after the out of the cheap state. Oh, of course, necessity is the mother of invention. You know what I mean? Matt Harvey, right now, right now, if the Mets released him and he, you know, and ten days are designated for assignment, ten days later he becomes a free agent. The best, who's going to take a flyer on this guy? Really, you who know would what, do Rich, it? I think I think there's 29 teams that would. I'm not, do you really? I'm not, I'm not in a rush to release him. I think uh, a Matt Harvey motivated to improve himself and to reprove himself would benefit the Mets as opposed to releasing him. I mean, if he fails, he fails, obviously. But he's motivated, in one respect, motivated to improve and get out of here. That could still work to the Mets' benefit. I think 29 teams will scoff him right up. That's interesting. I, 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 I don't see that. And in fact, all right. Well, let, let me let me take that a different way because if he goes the whole season, and with the Mets, and let's just say they, oh, they don't release him, which I don't advocate, by the way. Um, but if let's say he goes the whole season, he ends up with a five ERA, something like that. <laughs> they, they were speculating, which would be an improvement from last year. They they were speculating on the broadcast just a couple of days ago that he, he'd probably end up on a minor league deal somewhere. So you're right. Maybe teams would scoff him up, but it would, it would be – can you imagine – think about 2013 and how, oh, my God, the Mets are never going to re-sign this guy. You know, he's, he's a world beater. He's going to be a Yankee when he's a free agent, all that stuff. Yeah. You go from that to – And Steinbrenner is Steinbrenner's going to pull a George. <laughs> right. <laughs> he, he might wind up on I'm a long island. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Uh, this Hal guy is is a little better than his, his father, and I actually appreciate in many ways him letting Brian Cashman actually show us what kind of a GM he's made of, um, even though it's still kind of annoying that, that the rebuild was a year. But at the same time, I could totally see that happening, where it's just that's where the minor league deal happens. That's where the, you know, they tried with John Neese. It didn't work. But, like, you know, with Harvey, Harvey finally being a Yankee, and, and you know, it's like I – I, I I gave you another chance, son. <laughs> yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, and um, he 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 would might he might get a minor league deal somewhere else. But think about how far he would have fallen, how far his stock would have fallen. And you know, Mike, you raised a good point about motivation because th- there's nothing better than a motivated athlete. Harvey could still throw the ball 93, 94 miles an hour, 
And the problem is, I think it goes back to what you just said, Mike. He he, he doesn't pitch. Well, there's something wrong. Is it movement? Is he doesn't know how to pitch anymore? Or he never had to know. What's that? He doesn't. He also like you can see the attitude on the mound too. I mean, you know, he just one of the things that you picked up on Matt Harvey at his best. And mind you, he was throwing like 98, 99, and, and and snapped his elbow eventually. But that slider was really kicking, and he had that attitude. I mean, when a runner got on, he didn't sweat, and you just see the sweat now. Hey, well, I, I think because you're looking at a man in panic mode, he knows that his career is just you know falling apart like wet toilet paper. That's where I think the sweat's coming from. Right, so I every really time a runner gets on, he's like, oh, my God, uh, my career's falling <laughs> apart like wet toilet paper. And that's, but, it's literally just a piece of wet toilet paper standing off on first. Yeah, but, you know, before <laughs> all these surgeries, now that's he was, now that's before, these sur- right. before these surgeries, he was literally getting by on just pure stuff. He didn't have to think it through. Slider, execute, fastball, execute, curve, execute, just throw it. I but mean, we it have, was right, good but he stuff. was locating though. But he was still locating though. He still he still had the tenacity. There was still something there, and something happened. There's something that happened in between that wasn't just all the surgeries that everybody's talking about. Uh, well, it, it, there's something else, and and unfortunately and we can't pinpoint it. We can I only say he's not. I say he's not dealing with adversity well. Not in the slightest bit. That's my answer. Well, I think with that, I think that is definitely the answer, the only answer to come up with. And, and we haven't seen the end of the Matt Harvey saga, but something feels finite about it. Um, Rich, I am going to start this off by saying that I would say that Mickey Calloway has a B- minus so far. Where And, and I, I will loop back around and explain that. I'd like you to go and, and tell me if you want to give a letter grade, go ahead. But what do you think about Mickey Calloway so far? You know, I'll give him a B. I'm not far off from you. I'll give him a B, maybe slash B plus. Uh, but I, I'm I'm in kind of agreement. And I'll tell you why, you know, briefly. I think off the field, you know, in terms of holding guys accountable, not in-game managing – holding guys accountable, the way he conducts himself in the press conferences, things like that. I give him an A for that. Um, I think, you know, like Mike alluded to earlier, what you're seeing with Dave Island and Mickey Calloway is they have a very low tolerance for bullshit. Uh, When people don't perform, they get moved out of those roles, which I think is great. Um, He, But he has a way of talking to the media in a good, good way that he doesn't throw his players under the bus, so you have to give him credit for that too. Um, so all of that, like, A. Now, in terms of his in-game managing, I mean, it's it's been a little suspect, you know, and I think a couple of times he's gotten caught with his pants down. I'll give you one in particular. That Sunday afternoon game when it was 40 degrees against the Brewers, we all know, you know, he sends Jay Bruce up with first base open and Syndergaard on deck, and Jay Bruce up as a pinch hitter, knowing darn well they're going to walk Jay Bruce, right, or he should have known that, and they go ahead and do that, and then Syndergaard's pitch count was already high, and so what what happens next? Well, Syndergaard pitches one batter to one batter in the top of the next inning, and then he's out. So you've lost Jay Bruce for the game. You've lost Syndergaard now for the game, which you were going to do anyway, because remember that game, he was at about 90-plus pitches in the fifth inning. So, Mickey, what are you doing? What was that about? And um, 
and a couple of other times on on double switches. You know, he's looked a little. It's looked a little strange. Uh, going to Familia for three out for more than three out saves on you know uh, on a fairly regular basis is not advisable, and he's done that a lot. So, I'll give his in-game managing a C. So if you average it all out, to me, it's a BB plus. I, I think he um, definite upgrade over Terry, no question. And I think being in the manager's chair, he'll he'll grow into that role a little bit. You know, they they joke around about how you know people will say, oh, you know, making double switches isn't rocket science. But when you've never done it, and you've also never been a manager, it's. I think he's gotten. I think he's made a few bad decisions along the way. But I think those things will smooth themselves out. So I'll go B to B plus, but I do see him being an A manager eventually. Yeah, I, I think that that's uh, all valid. I think I think it's it's kind of the rookie manager getting the kinks out. Um, you know, everything was coming up roses at first, and and you know some of the same moves that he was making later sometimes, like with the same players, they just weren't panning out. Like that first uh, big loss against the Nationals. <clears throat> Um, I think that that game. I guess it was against the the. Um, I I forget who it, it was against, but Gary was really giving him a hard time, and I think Gary had a lot of valid points <laughs> um, with some of the double switches that you're talking about. And I think I I think a lot of uh, some of the things that were talked about, and, and he's really kind of gotten his uh, his pants have been down with Wilmer Flores here. Because the team doesn't have much speed, but um, it has some, and I think it could have been utilized better. Uh, Mike, what do you think? A lot of things, bro. Uh, you know, Callaway is going to introduce us to things we're not accustomed to. This is the transition from the old to new. It never really makes sense when you're in the midst of it. Looking back on it, you can document history easily. Uh you know, but while you're in the middle of it, it all seems a little weird sometimes. And uh, I, I give him a C, but only because I'm um, I'm still very curious about this whole approach. You know, Sandy Alderson, again, this is a double-barreled approach with Mickey Calloway, a former pitching coach, and Dave Island, a very, you know, reputable pitching coach. A double-barreled approach to what is, you know, what was supposed to be or still is, whichever way you look at it, the Mets' strength, starting pitching and pitching in general. Uh, and he warned us in spring training, we even talked about this on the podcast, that he was going to limit starting pitchers to perhaps two times through the lineup and utilize his bullpen. So he warned us about that. And I did the math. Uh, from our last podcast, Rich, we're up just a tick. The bullpen is accounting for 44.3% of all innings pitched right now, and the starters are accounting for 55.7% of all innings pitched. And, you know, obviously you have to throw in a couple of extra inning games in there. Uh, But what to make of it, I'm not sure. That's why I'm still curious. I want to see where this is headed. Uh, because, again, I do feel he's going to be introducing us into things and, and doctrine uh, that we're not necessarily accustomed to. And I say that uh, I'm speaking of perhaps an older generation like myself and, and Rich and Sam, you're a little tiny, somewhat behind us. Uh, you know, so 
for 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 older fans, this might be a radical change. For younger fans, maybe not so much. Uh, but I'm just still very curious. Uh, he obviously trusts Syndergaard and he trusts Degrom to go beyond uh, a second time around the lineup. But he's averaging four relievers a night. And Rich, you and I touched upon this last podcast as well. We might see a, a a whole new approach to utilizing the forty man roster for the sake of keeping fresh arms available. If Callaway continues a, 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 along this path, you know, so curious, curious is the only way I can really put this. I'm not willing, uh, you know, to celebrate or condemn anything he's doing just yet. I'm still curious. Yeah, uh, I, I certainly am as well, uh, you know. And, hey, they they have a 15-8 and eight record, and you have to give him credit where credit's due for those wins. He he has certainly gotten uh, that done. And really, you know, it, it, when you look at it, for a rookie manager, a 15-8 record in your first, uh, um, you know, 23 games is pretty impressive. Right, Rich? It is. You know, if somebody, I always try to tell myself that. If someone told me when I was driving down for opening day, hey, you know what, guess what the Mets record is going to be after 23 games, I would have said, huh, I would be over the moon happy if they were 13 and 10. Over the moon. And I'd even take 12 and 11. But they're 15 and 8. And that's pretty damn good. Now, the thing is, you know, when you go from 12 and 2 to 15 and 8, that doesn't sound quite so good because that tells you that you are 3-6 and six over your last nine, and that obviously has to get turned around. But the record is what it is. You know, after 23 games, 15-8, and eight, and they're, I believe they're still in first place. I kind of laugh when people look at standings and baseball standings in April, but I think they might still be half a game ahead of uh, the Phillies and the Braves. doesn't really matter. But, um, but they're in good shape overall. They, they, have, they have some things to fix, but... Um, but Mickey and the team, you know, overall they've done a good job. They're 15 and 8 and and uh and I think as angry as many fans might be after the the recent play, especially after today, today's loss really bugged me. Um I think a lot of people though, even if they're unhappy with the most, you know, the very recent events, if you really sit back and look at the big picture, you have to be happy with 15 and 8. They're not only a half game ahead of the Philadelphia Phillies um, and one uh, one and a half games ahead of the uh, Atlanta, and who cares about the Nationals? Um, <laughs> um, and we're going to get into that in a second about the entire National League, actually, because I kind of wanted to talk about it because I do have some opinions about what I think of Washington. Um, <clears throat> we're also oh, a half game what you feel, man. <laughs> yeah, we're we're also uh, a half game ahead of uh, the Yankees still, so I guess we're holding steady on that one um, for, for the for the Mayor's Trophy, everybody. Uh, it, you know, because I guess that's that's how the Mayor's Trophy gets handed out now, unless you win the Subway World Series, um, is just by record. So why don't why don't we go with that? The National League East, fellas. The National League East. The Philadelphia Phillies have turned around after Gabe Kapler has gotten hit really, really soundly. 
Uh, Atlanta is probably starting to pitch better. Their offense has been excellent, and, and that, there's really no surprise there. Um, the Nationals. Here's what I think about the Nationals. I, I uh, Rich, I, I just don't have any faith that they are all that good. I, I think maybe when Daniel Murphy comes back, they'll be better. But I think that doesn't matter the manager, they're going to have an attitude problem. Maybe, you know, considering this has all started, even the winning, but, but the attitude problem has started since Bryce Harper got up there uh, and they haven't won uh, a playoff series uh, either. So I just, I, I know everybody's like, you know, oh, Washington will be there. Don't worry, Washington will be there. I think the cream of the crop is actually starting to show itself in the uh, the National League East. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll, I'll bite my words. But uh, the only thing I could see is Philadelphia falling off a, a, a little bit and the Nationals taking, taking over there. But um, I don't think they're all that good, and I don't think they're going to be all that good. Rich? Well, I think what the Nationals have shown you is that they don't have the ability to survive major injuries. And not many teams do. I mean, the Mets certainly didn't last year. They found a way to survive in 2016 when they got their guys back. But the Nationals are feeling the effect of losing Murphy and with Rendon out. Um, Those are two huge pieces of their lineup. And with those guys out and add to it that Zimmerman had been slumping. Yeah, I mean, what they're showing you is that they – like most teams, don't have incredible depth. I mean, not everybody's the Yankees, where they could bring up, you know, Torres and uh, and all those other guys, and um, Tyler Austin, you know, to, to fill in. Not every team has that, and Washington is showing you that they don't. You know, they're they're staying around 500, you know, with guys like Wilmer Defoe and, um, and the like, you know, filling in, but they really aren't able to – to maintain their former dominance without Murphy and Rendon and, and a slumping Zimmerman. So that's not to be unexpected. Uh, they still have Strasburg and Scherzer and Geo, And, you know, those guys last I checked were pitching fairly well, but the lineup is short right now. And, um, you know, I hope it stays that way for a while. I mean, because they obviously are a different team. You could pitch to that lineup, but when you have Murphy and Rendon in there, it's much harder to do so. So, I guess in summary, Sam, I wouldn't count them out because at some point, well, Murphy, who knows? I mean, that microfracture surgery is a big deal. Um, but at some point, they should have their guys back, and they're probably still a good team, but I think you're, you're seeing a team right now that's incredibly depleted. Well, what's interesting is that they're actually pretty good on the road, road right now, 8-7, and seven, but they're terrible at home, 3-7 and seven at home. Um, you know, uh, I, I, yes, I think it's going to definitely change with Daniel Murphy and especially the way the Mets, uh, you know, he's faced the Mets. But I, uh, I just, I, I noticed how I didn't even mention Miami. Um, but I just don't think they're all that good. Mike? Well, I think they're a good team. Uh, nothing more, nothing less. Uh, I've always thought they were a little bit overrated outside of, uh, Harper and Scherzer, I guess. Um, but for the moment, uh, the Phillies are where they are because they happen to have the best ERA in the NL East. Uh, right now, they're 
pitch, pitching at a 3.33 clip and we're behind them, pitching at a 3.65 clip, and being that we're talking about the Nationals, they're over four, barely, 4.06. I think that will correct itself. As you say, Sam, I think the Phillies will fall off eventually. Uh, you know, but they're getting it done with pitching in the, in the early going. Uh, I do think that eventually this race will boil down to the Mets and Nationals. Uh, and the question really is, you know, how well will either team feast on the Marlins and how well can either team do uh, against the Braves? You know, and the Phillies, well, you know, if either team overlooks them come September, one of these two teams is going to be in trouble. You know, but uh, I'm with you, Sam. I think they're somewhat overrated. They're good, but I'm not willing to take that too far. And I always thought they were somewhat overrated. So it's going to be an interesting race, you know, but both teams, but we're Met fans, so let's stick with them. They better feast on the Marlins. They got to get fat on them. That's the bottom line. And we know our history against the Marlins, good or bad. Yeah, I'd be disappointed. I mean, listen, baseball's baseball, but I'd be disappointed if they lose any game to them. Have they already? I think they already did lose one game, right? Um, but the good thing is, the good thing is, we got a leg up on the Nationals so far. It's good to get off to an early start. We're four and two against them in, in six games, so that's going to help it us. Was come very summer. important. It very was important. very important to to win that last game when we were about to get swept and and basically yeah, very almost almost erased the Jacob Degrom uh, game that we blew against the Nationals. But uh, I, I think that. Yeah, you gotta get fat. You gotta get fat on Miami. I'm not sure when the next time you got gotta get fat on San Diego too. Uh, you know. Oh well, yeah, and, but and you know, I know that, I'll tell you one thing: the Colorado Rockies. The color. What was that? No, I'm just saying your division. These are the guys you play most, so you got to get fat against the Braves, the Phillies, and the Marlins, and, and see how this race, you know, boils down. I'm a Lyft driver out here, and uh, some Rockies fans were talking about how, uh, you know, San Diego sucks against everybody else, but, like, most of their wins have been against the Colorado Rockies, so we better not let our guard down tomorrow as well. Otherwise, they're going to creep on up, uh, up on us like the Rockies. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue to this uh, before we get to the number nine segment of our, of our show. Uh, Rich, I think today was yet another glaring day that the Mets need to do something about catchers? Yes. Short answer is yes. Um, they, they cannot survive with what they have. You know, I know it, it's bravado to say, oh, you know, we'll make it with what we have. No, no. You have two pitchers up every day in the lineup. Your, your catchers can't hit. Um Lobatone disappoints me because, you know, he comes with the reputation of being a really good defensive catcher. I haven't seen that. Nito, yeah, he threw out a couple of guys, okay, but he can't hit a lick. So, they're, they're, you know, they're basically – one of the things we always, you know, bitched about with Sandy Alderson was – or Omar even, the way they handled injuries. They were playing a man short. Oh, you know, the way they – the guy's not on the DL, but he can't play, so he's, you know, they're playing a man short. The lineup's a man short right now. They're playing with seven hitters in the lineup. It's the truth. Those guys cannot hit, and 
This is you're not talking about a couple of days. It's been a couple of weeks now for Plowecki. And if you heard Gary Cohen the other night, he said it's he is not close. You know, he no baseball activities, just trying to get some strength in the hand. So it's going to be a while longer. And by the way, look, I root for Plowecki. I like Plowecki, but we he's not. We talk about him like you know he's going to be the second coming of Johnny Bench. I mean. When Plowecki comes back, okay, that's okay to say, but we don't even know what Plowecki is. Catching is a problem for this team. Now, those ridiculous trades that John Heyman threw out, you know, send them Conforto for JT Real Muto, no. Send them Rosario, no. Um, and and maybe my thought on, on catching is this one. Maybe maybe the Mets can't shop in a JT Real Muto store. Maybe they don't have what the Marlins are going to look for. And so maybe you have to look somewhere else. Maybe you have to look at a, a team like the Reds, who are, are you know, god-awful, and they have Devin Mesoraco, who's a decent backstop. What about him? What about, um, what about Ramos from the, from the uh, Rays? They're not going anywhere. Maybe you can get him. So as much as I would love to have Real Muto on the team, I think they have to address catching, and if they have to look themselves in the mirror and say, we don't have the resources to get Real Muto – don't let that stop you from getting a major league bona fide catcher. There are teams out there that are rebuilding, and this I oh, and I'll say this, and I'll then I'll leave it alone. This idea about oh, you know, let's see what's happening at the All Star break. Hold on, or in the trade deadline, you could lose a lot of games between now and the trade deadline. You don't wait three months to figure this out. It's pretty clear to me that if you the weak spot on this team is catching. Do something. Get somebody in here who's at least an average major league catcher, because quite frankly right now, you don't have it. No, no, they don't. Uh, yeah, I, I think that was a great idea regarding the Reds catch, and I have to look more into who you're talking about. Um, uh, Mike, what do you think? Well said, Rich. I'm not saying we need to move away from Ploiecki. I think he can still have a future with the Mets. It's Darno, who really, you know, makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Uh, I'm done with him, so the Mets definitely need to make a move. Uh, and I was barking up that tree since spring training. You know, I saw it coming, and here it is. We're living it out. Uh, find out what the price for Real Mudo is. What, what harm is there in that? Just find out. But the Mets need to make a, a move at catcher, most certainly. Uh, keep Plowecki. I, I thought this was going to be the season that, you know, he was going to start clicking. Uh, guess not. We're going to have to wait on that one. But, you know, we can keep him and uh, as a backup. But we really do need to make a, a serious effort in, you know, plugging up this hole in the lineup and behind the plate. Uh, my preference is, I look, I've always had my primary fo- focus is on uh, on a receiver. You know, I'll get my offense from other positions. I, I need a good receiver, somebody who, you know, is agreeable with the pitchers, who knows how to call a game, this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. But I need a defensive slash receiver first and foremost before I even start start talking offense about a catcher. That's what I would want. I, I, I'll take it a step further, uh, Rich, with the Reds. I'll go ahead and throw Dominic Smith into a package to get Joey Votto over here, <laughs> including with the catcher. 
what are they going to what what Votto Votto's going to survive this year? No. <laughs> like he's a five and twenty. The headline is Votto slugged three run homer in red loss. <laughs> that's that's the main page headline, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I mean, it's it's probably not going to happen in terms of the will ponds, but if there's anything you I know would include at this point, you know what, at Sam, this point, I trade. think you're, you're make that trade, Sam. Who would you package for for Votto? With Dominic Smith. Well, if you're getting Votto, I'm, I think I'm sure Dominic they can Smith figure. I'm sure they can figure out. I'm sure. The Mets have been trying to build uh, some pitching depth back under underneath the uh, the minors again, and it's kind of been working. I would just keep doing that because you really can't afford to involve uh, either Rosario or Conforto at this point. I, I would say because so. You if have I'm to the like, if you, if you're making you, you got to give them back a first baseman and one that you plug in right now, like they are with so many other AAA players. Um, I think it actually makes a lot of sense in terms of what the Mets are going for other than the the contract. But if I'm the Reds and the Mets call me up and, you know, Dom Smith is the first name out of their mouth, I'm hanging up on them. You mean if you're the Mets? Yeah. If I'm the Reds and the Mets start with Dom Smith, I'm hanging up on them. Do you think that Dom Smith can be, at his best, better than Joey Votto right now? I, my mind's not on Dominic Smith. Actually, my mind is on Peter Alonzo, who's with uh, Binghamton at the moment. Uh, that's where my How, mind and is. He's doing well. I, I'm and just he's saying, doing if well I'm too, the right? Reds and the Mets start that conversation with Dominic Smith, I'm hanging up. Oh, well, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I thought you said the Mets are hanging up. <laughs> no, no, the opposite. If I'm the Reds and Sandy Alderson will argue you this, Dominic say, oh, I'm hanging up. I'm hanging up. Not interested, bro. Dominic Smith has a lot to prove, and he's not going to be able to do it to Las Vegas with those phantom stats, and everyone knows it. So you're saying that Dominic Smith uh, cannot be a proper trade trade trip trade trade chip until he proves himself at the major league level? He can, but he's not going to be a lead. He's not going to be the worm on the hook. He's got to be packaged. Somebody else has, has to has to be the you know the lead in that trade. Dominic Smith isn't going to be the hook. First base, Rich. What what do you do right now? Because uh, I'm losing I'm losing faith uh, with with Adrian Gonzalez, and uh, I, I was giving him some leeway because he was getting some big hits, but he's kind of dried up. Yeah. No, you're right. I. I but first base doesn't concern me. You know, I think you have options there. You have Aegon who you could release and pay him half a million dollars and be done with him. You know, so you have that option. Not suggesting I would do that now, but you have that. Flores can play first against left-handed pitching. You have Jay Bruce who, you know, if you wanted to move him to first base, that is, to me, as far as I'm concerned, is definitely an option. You have Lagaris to plug in the center. You put Conforto in right. So you have options there. I don't lose any sleep thinking about first base. I lose sleep thinking about catcher. I really do. Um, and, look, you know, if the Reds are what well, they are, they are completely retooling. And if they make Votto available and it makes sense, yeah, sure. I mean, I would, I would start a package with, um, with Alonzo or 
Dom Smith because Votto's not not that old. It's like thirty, like early thirties maybe, or right around thirty. So you you can have him for a while if you're willing to pay him. But um, sure, if the Reds you know call up and say, look, we'll take this guy and this guy, and it's fair. You upgrade first base, that's fine. But I think if if I'm spending my effort somewhere as a as Sandy Alderson, I'm trying to find a catcher. That, that first base to me is a brush fire. Catcher is is a you know a ten story building on fire with this team. I agree with you. I, I think I, I think when I'm looking at the, the Cincinnati Reds though, uh, and I'm thinking about first base. I mean, I'm like really trying to make a splash. Like, but you know. You know, that's just me. And including Mazzarocco, because, you know, he's not really uh, performing all that well right now, but he seems to have a little bit of pop over his short career. Um, yeah, that, that's just, that's right now I'm thinking like either I'd like Dominic Smith to be a part of our uh, uh, thing going on right now, as Rosario uh, is currently, uh, or... I, I would like to use him as a trade ship to get a, a proper first baseman. And, and um, until Adrian Gonzalez shows me that he, he can get that average up a little bit um, and that he's not going to strike out every single at-bat these days. Um, also, I'll, I'll, I'll go to here. I think uh, Rich, uh, as Struble, was so absolutely healthy and then tweaked his hamstring, and maybe the, the average might dip a bit. I think you're right. You know, um, it's like if you're a Mets fan, you just can't seem to get away from injuries. And last night, it was sort of like a throwaway line. They said, you know, oh, you know, Cabrera's out of the lineup. He has a tight hamstring. It's like, whoa, whoa, where's that coming from? Um, Because, you know, every time you hear about a Met player being injured, you think that you're not going to see the guy for six weeks. And so just the way we're conditioned as fans. So... um, (laughs) Isn't it, though, right? Because you got, the first place your head goes is this injury is a lot more serious than they're telling us, and the medical staff is going to entirely screw it up. Now, it's just it's – it's our default knee-jerk reaction. And, uh, yeah, so Cabrera is off to a great start. He actually – this is the healthiest he's looked to me. He doesn't look like he's in pain when he's on, on the field, and he's doing well, but lo and behold, the hamstring. So um, – but then again – you know, maybe this is a sign of progress because maybe they got him out of the lineup early. They didn't pull a Cespedes with him, which that was exactly a year ago, a year ago this week, that everybody knew he was going to hurt himself by playing hurt, and he did. Um, but may, maybe this is a sign of, of the better times that are here because they're handling the Cabrera injury differently. So let, let, we can only hope. Hope. Spring's eternal. Uh, unfortunately, out here in Colorado, we have all four seasons in one day, so I don't even know what to do. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's sometimes my mood with this team and with my, my uh, life in general, but you got to keep on trooping on and say la vie, as they say. Um, so, moving on, I think, I think that's a good segue as we uh, enter 8 o'clock to get to number 9, fellas. It is my favorite number, and uh, for many reasons uh, – First and foremost, I was born on February 9th at 1.09 a.m., and I, I won't go deep into uh, why, but, uh, of course, one of the reasons is because of my love for baseball. And um, I, uh, I I do love the number nine, and uh, I guess the only place uh, to start would be with the 1909 
Brooklyn Dodgers, we do like to do a little history on uh, the on on Metsian podcast, excuse me. And then in 1909, they were the Brooklyn Superbos, and they weren't very good. So I guess right now we have to, you know, have some perspective about the the Mets team that we talk about on a daily basis because this Brooklyn Dodgers team was 53 and 100, and uh, they were uh, still fifth of eighth in attendance, weirdly enough, but they finished sixth in the National League. Um, And um, I don't believe that was, let's see, that was not the, that that was still uh yeah they they did not finish last that year did this hold on for a second 1909 this is saying 5598 and the other one was saying 55100 oh excuse me 5598 the Pythagorean theorem win loss record which is certainly uh anachronistic um they uh finished 5598 tied with the St. Louis uh Cardinals at 54 and 98, um, basically tied. Uh, and the Boston, probably the Boston Bees at the time, I believe. No, they were the Doves. The Boston Doves were last that year at 45 and 108. And the Giants, the New York Giants, had a pretty solid year, but unfortunately fell short of the pennant, being in third place at 92 and 61. Uh, Mike, r- uh, real quick on some history here. Uh, I- I'd say... Looking at how awful the Dodgers were that year, the Superbas, mind you, excuse me, uh, we should count our blessings currently at this current 15-8 and eight stage. <laughs> uh, you're right about that. Uh, poor season for the locals indeed, but I'll just throw this out there. Ebbets Field had yet to be built, and the Dodgers, well, what we call the Dodgers, uh, were playing at Washington Park. Uh, which encompassed uh, Third and Fourth Street between Fifth and Fourth Avenue in Brooklyn. Uh, actually, extending all the way down to Third Avenue, there were three versions of the park. But they were still playing at Washington Park in what they were still calling back then Red Hook Brooklyn, which later became Gowanus Brooklyn, which is now morphing into what they're calling South Slope. Uh, <laughs> real estate agents, you gotta love them but I just wanted to throw that out there. Rich, is there anything out of that that you, uh, that you took you'd like to comment on? No, the only thing I'm, I'm going to comment on is you think about that 1909, they got from city to city on train, I would imagine. And, and the trains were probably pretty inefficient. So think about what those guys did. You know, the, I believe as far West as baseball went at that Point. I'm not sure if it was all the way out in St. Louis yet. It might have been like the Cincinnati area. And um, they would get around on trains. They would, you know, most people did not have automobiles. There were no lights. Think about context. Think about, and somehow they managed to play 158 or whatever the, the number was, 152, 153 games. It, and they did it on trains and people getting the ballparks on horses. And think about that. You know, no night games, no TV. Most games probably were not live broadcast on the radio. Just think about how much life has changed. My goodness. It really is remarkable, like you said. I mean, I know what he's talking about when he's talking about Washington Park. It's actually currently a park called Washington Park now, where an old uh, uh, revolutionary house where George Washington, I believe, stayed during the Battle of Brooklyn, 
Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, BTB. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. Yeah. That's how that went. And, and all, so on the grounds, there's a stone house where George Washington once stayed during battle. And uh, like, like, he, like you said, I mean, that was probably at the time. Um, I, 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 well, Mike, again, please help me without me looking it up. Was the Bay Ridge line, I guess that's what it would be called then, was that there already? Passing by, uh, you know, it's funny you say that. Uh, there was a Fifth Avenue elevated line and a Third Avenue elevated line uh, that extended down into Bay Ridge from downtown. Uh, branched off. Okay. If I'm, I could be very mistaken about this, but it, it, you know, once he came over the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, wow, the street name is right on the tip of my tongue, but it was a major hub right then. Uh, right there off the Brooklyn Bridge, and then the elevated line would branch off into the Fulton uh, line, the Myrtle Avenue line, and then down Flatbush Avenue would eventually turn off down 3rd Avenue and 5th Avenue. So the train actually did extend all the way down to Bay Ridge and would have most certainly passed Washington Park uh, on its way there. So the trains were available. yeah, so Ebbets Field at the time, the land for Ebbets Field at the time, everybody, was basically farmlands, mostly wooden shackles almost. Uh, with uh, It was called Pigtown, that area. And I'm looking at it now. Uh, the subway line was built between the, the IRT Broadway 7th Avenue line, the 123, um, which basically uh, uh, is it, it, the two points. I'm reading on Wikipedia, everybody, right now. The line was constructed in two main portions by, by the Interborough Rapid Transit Company, which is known as the IRT, which was a private operator before it became a government subsidiary. And um, the it all came together. And this still passed that land at the time, but it, like you said, Rich, it was, it was very, very new. I mean, people were probably still at the time mostly getting there via trolley, I would say, Mike. Yeah, without a doubt, you know, without a doubt, and hence the name Trolley Dodgers getting out of their way. Uh, no pun intended, really, but that's the way it happened. Uh, but, no, mass transit in the form of train and trolley were most definitely available, but Rich is also right in that people went to the games, you know, horse and buggy as well. Uh, but and, we're talking and New York some, City. Some, uh... Talking New York City in 1909, we're still talking a pretty... Uh, rather developed urban area. I, I think uh, a lot of people underestimate what life was really like back in, in the ones and the teens in the turn of the century. Uh, the railroad business had come a long way since the Civil War. And I do believe that they were traveling in, ball players that is, traveling in relative luxury. Uh, even back then, even back in the late 1800s, uh, I, I, I believe the number of ball players were still making upwards of at least 10% more than the average, you know, laborer or worker. You know, so they were always more well-off than the average guy. And I think their travel, uh, you know, mimicked that. I think they had nice cars. Look back on Babe Ruth. How many pe- yeah, I was, I was about to say, how many people do you think uh, took a model C to the game? Ooh, uh, you know what? It depends where. I mean, I'll tell you what. There were only there were only ten thousand six hundred sixty six produced that year. 
Yeah. Now, you know what? I bet you people drove their Model Ts to uh, the polo grounds with all the well-to-do people in Manhattan at the time. I would certainly That's venture to guess that. that, that was, Brooklyn, I mean, maybe not so giant, much. The, the Giants were very good at the time, and it, it was uh, in, in a good corner of Manhattan for, for the year. Um, and if you were, if you were well to do living in you know lower portions of Fifth Avenue, all you had to do was crank that buggy up and head uptown. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy that this is. I'm so happy that this is the direction that this is, this all went off on. Was was Rich ta- uh, bringing up transportation? Thank it's you. It's all Rich's fault. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, moving on, we have uh, the number nine. Uh, to talk about, um, and of course, uh, me being a little out of the game, I didn't have my my uh, uniform references up, uh, of course, and we got the Ultimate Mets database uh, to thank. Of course, John Springer has arranged this, Mets by the numbers. Um, number nine, we'll start with Jim Hickman, then Wes Westrom, J.C. Martin, Randy Bob. Bill Sudeikis, George Theodore, Joe Torre, Bruce Bochy, Mark Brad- Bradley, Jerry Martin, Ron Reynolds, Greg Jeffries, Todd Hunley, Todd Zeal, Ty Wigginton, Craig Brazell, Ricky Leday, Mike DeFelice, Marlon Anderson, Omer Santos twice, Ronnie Polino, Kirk Neuenheis, and last but not least, Brandon Nimmo. Uh, Rich, we'll start with you. Your uh, the ones, of course, that stick out to your mind. Well, you know, to me, Joe Torre sticks out um, because Mike. You remember when the Mets got him? I mean, I, I remember watching him as a little kid with the Cardinals and just thinking, "Wow, that guy can hit!" And the Mets got him very late in his career. Um, but you know, when you're a kid, you don't really understand that. So you know, when you're like eight or nine years old, and the Mets get him, you're like, "Oh, this is great! They got that Torre guy." But he was a shadow of himself at that point, and then we all know what happened. He became a player manager for a month and then a full-time manager. Um, and when Torrey was managing the Mets, it was really kind of cool. You know, you had a new, native New Yorker, a guy who was recently off the playing field as a very, very good good hitter. So in the time, you know, when Seaver was traded and all of that and the team was awful, I, I looked at Torrey as something positive, you know, for the reasons I mentioned, he was a, he was a like a lone bright spot for the Mets, and I always liked him. I of course don't like him now. Um, <laughs> I, I just I think he has a lot of animosity toward the Wilpons. He's basically said that um, because the way he was dismissed, you know, when Cashin et al. took over a year after they took over, um, and I think a lot of what he's done in his capacity in the front office of baseball has been done on, on bias. And I, I, maybe I'm just a bitter Mets fan, but some of the stuff he's done, not letting them wear the hats, um, you know, the idea of, of the way he ruled on the Ruben Tejada thing, you know, it was just, it, it just always seemed to me like he had an ax to grind. Anyway, so that's Tori. Um, there, there are a lot here. I'll leave some for you guys. I'll just comment on one more. And the other one I think about is Greg Jeffries. Um, Greg Jeffries is a guy who he was the can't-miss prospect, and we all know what happened. He came up, and he, he blew the doors off it, and he was he was great. And then he had to be sent back to the minor leagues, and he, and he came back, and he was unpopular because he um, 
had a little bit of hubris going on there, and he was very unpopular with his teammates, and, you know, he got into a fight with Roger McDowell the last day of, I believe, the 89 season uh, when McDowell was a Philly. So he was a very polarizing figure, a guy who went on to have a fairly decent major league career, but not what was expected of him. And then I'll leave you with this. Um, in fateful game five of the, no, I'm sorry, game four of the 88 National League Championship Series, uh, extra inning game after the Kirk Gibson um, home run, I'm sorry, after the Mike Sosha home run, then Gibson puts the Dodgers ahead. Mets have a rally going on. They have the first two on in the bottom of the inning, and you're like, okay, they're going to win this game. It's going to be all right. Jeffries is up, and he can't get a bunt down. Uh, he could not get the sacrifice down to move the runners to second and third, and the Mets end up not scoring and losing the game. And it all became a, a story because, well, here's Greg Jeffries, you know, never been asked to bunt because he's such a great hitter, and he couldn't get the bunt down, and blah, 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 blah. So um, not that that signaled the end of his career in New York, but at the same time, he just never lived up to what he was supposed to and was probably one of the most unpopular figures with Mets teammates that, that I can remember. So I'll leave it with those two. <laughs> Without a doubt. Mike, go ahead. Uh, I'm looking at Todd Hundley. Uh I was a huge Todd Hundley fan. And you know what? The day and the moment I learned of the Mike Piazza trade, that was my first reaction. I was like, yeah, but we got Todd Hundley. That was my first reaction. Uh, and, and then I just had to let that whole day marinate. And, you know, uh, I'm not complaining the way things turned out. But I was a huge Todd Hundley fan. Uh, I'm in agreement with Rich on Joe Torrey. When it comes to number nine, he's the first one that pops out. Uh, you know, he had a very good season as a part-timer for us in 75, but my uncle used to rave about him as a player. Uh, and, and, of course, he became our manager for a couple of years. Uh, and who else sticks out on this list? Uh, this is the start, George Theodore. <laughs> uh, let me see. Uh, Jerry Morton. I drafted Jerry Martin in my Stratomatic team back in 79 because he had a minus five throwing arm. How do you like that one? And uh, Brandon Nemo. I'm a big fan of Brandon Nemo. I think he's going to be somebody, somebody productive. I'm not going to oversell him, but I think he's going to be a very productive, good player. Sam? Yeah, I would agree with you about Brandon Nimmo. Um, I, I got to ask you guys, how come uh, a World Series champion didn't stand out to you? Martin. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess it's because you guys have always said that '69, like it really started for '73 with you, right, right, Rich? For me, it did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, J.C. Martin. You know, because he gets overshadowed. I mean, he's there, he stands out, but he, I don't know. You know, and for two guys who didn't experience it, he kind of gets overshadowed. There's at least a yeah. dozen names yeah. that jump out at us first before his does. I, I mean, no slight against J.C. Martin. I, I think that's just the way it evolved, Rich. What do you think? I think so. I think on that team, you think about, you know, you think about Seaver, you think about Clendenin, you think about A.G. J.C. Martin, I, I, I have to be honest, I, 
I believe he was – was he a pitcher? I, I can't even remember. Or was he a catcher? He was a, he was a catcher. He was a catcher. Yeah. Jack DeLauro was the pitcher. I always got those guys confused. Never saw either one of them play that I could recall. But, um, but right, J.C. Martin was a catcher, and Jack DeLauro was a pitcher. And didn't J.C. Martin lay down a bunt that in the World Series, 69 World Series that when they threw to first base, they said he was out of the baseline that hit him, and the Mets yes, ended up winning the game on that bunt, right? Talked about that, yes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so Joe Torre definitely stands out to me. Wes Westrom, just because he, you know, he, I, he was a manager uh, during a time. What, what's interesting about that was he obviously probably wasn't all that good, but he sat over the Mets during a very transitional phase uh, and was the manager for uh, Tom Seaver's first year. Um, Bruce Bochy, I always love when I see names that I just generally knew as, as uh, managers pop up. Uh, Tory is a completely separate subject just because of, of his New York uh, uh, representation. I think that, and in, in you, I think you hit the nail on the head uh, when discussing Joe Tory about uh, overall uh, Rich. Um, <clears throat> Todd Hunley, of course. Yeah, Greg Jeffries for all the reasons that I've heard from you guys about him. Todd Zeal, um, you know, he he was a he's a pennant winner. Um, Ty Wigginson pretty good during some really awful years. He he always impressed me during those years. Uh, Ricky Leday, just because uh, I remember that he went like six for six in his first uh, few at-bats uh, uh, in the 1998 World Series. Um, Mikey Felice, Marlon Anderson, I just love that those type of names come across uh, uh, Mets history, even though Mike Felice is kind of part of the infamous uh, period, as, as is Marlon Anderson. As is Omer Santos, but Omer Santos has has that interesting, you know, it's always nice to have a moment off Jonathan Papelbon, especially in a, a really crappy year. Um, that year at the time, I know that that was a big win for the Mets, so I will always give Omer Santos credit because he sat on a fastball when Jonathan Papelbon was, was kind of, you know, iffy uh, after, I forget exactly how uh, Gary, how, uh, um, Gary Sheffield got on base, but uh, it you know he hit it off uh, basically off of the right over the green monster and it ricocheted back onto the field. So we had a replay, um, but that that was a fun moment for 2009 because 2009 is my least favorite year of all time. Um, <laughs> Ronnie Paulino, I'll just remember that he got a, a pretty nice hit against the Phillies the night that Osama bin Laden was shot. Kirk Neuenheis, you know, interestingly enough, he left his mark, albeit small, on Mets history. But uh, you know, that was that was cool. Random, randomly getting those three homers, and uh, I really do think Brandon Nimmo can be going to be quite sound, as you say, Mike. Um, and that will segue to our last word. It, it's always been a pleasure, guys. I'm glad to get back into the episode numbers. We got we got we got number nine in, fellas. That felt good talking about number nine. All right, you know that what? was the last single digits of our, our, our uh, Mets run. So uh, no, next up uh, is a couple of digits, word. and we'll get into that. Before, so before we get to the last, last word, word. and um, we'll start with you, Rich. What is your last word for the 2018 New York Mets at 15 and 8 currently? Well, I think Mike had something he wanted to say before the last word, Mike. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys two questions, one specifically for you, Rich, and uh, one for everyone. Uh, the one for everyone, Todd Zeal, as we were doing number nine. How did you guys really feel about him? Because I never managed to warm up to him because of John Oldwood. 
Either one of you guys. That's an interesting uh, one, right? I, you know, I'll, I'll just uh, as as somebody who was, you know, the Nets were my second favorite team at the time because I was uh, now I am now a converted Nets fan from the Yankees. Um, I I love John Olrud and I love the '99 team. And looking back on that, they're still my favorite Mets team of the era. Um, but I still think that. Yes, you are giving him uh, a bad rap because I, I know he was like a 267 hitter, but what I felt at the time in that 267 was that he was always coming through. That 267 went a long way. Uh, what do you what do you feel, Rich? I love Todd Zeal. And you know what, Mike? I never, till this minute when you just said it, I never really thought of him as Olerud's replacement. I, for some reason, because I, I, I loved Olerud. Johnny O is my man. Um, but I didn't think of it as, well, they got rid of Olerud for Zeal, which obviously they didn't. Olerud wanted to go to the Northwest, you know, where he was from and all that. So, or close to where he's from, I think he was Canadian. Um, so, you know, that, I never thought of it that way. And if I did, I probably would like Zeal a little bit less. But I love Todd Zeal. I mean, you know why I, why I like Todd Zeal? Because Here's a guy who, off the field, he was in a couple of TV shows, and he, and he produces TV shows and movies and stuff, so he has a you know, very active career off the field. I think he's very well-spoken, um, and he was very versatile. You know, Zeal could play a lot of different positions, and if you remember, he asked Art Howe – ooh, did I just say that out loud, Art Howe? He ah. asked Art Howe if at, <laughs> on the last game of – oh, I had a shake for a moment um, – that – the last game of the 2004 season, he asked Art Howe if he can catch an inning because he hadn't caught in years and years and years, and he came up as a catcher with the Cardinals. So Art Howe agreed to it, and Zeal, the Mets played the Expos last day of the 2004 season. I don't remember what inning it was. It was toward the middle, like maybe sixth, seventh inning. Zeal got in there and caught an inning. So I, I kind of thought that was cool. Nice. And then the other question I had, uh, Rich, you and I, we lived through them both. The Dark Ages, 77 to 82, and then the Madoff mess. Which did you find more ruinous? Because we were talking about Joe Torre, and I guess that's where my mind wandered. Yeah, the 77 to 82 was really bad. To me, that was worse because obviously the number one thing, you know, the elephant in the room, Seaver. Um, Staub had been traded just a year or two before. And so they clearly had gutted the team and felt no remorse about doing it. They tried you know, to bring in, they brought Kingman back, they brought in Foster, but none of it worked. And it was just six seasons inclusive, uh, oh, if you want to go to 83, seven seasons in- inclusive of just total garbage. And, and it was, seemed like it never ended. So I'm going to say that was worse. How about for you? I, I agree. I agree. Uh, for all the reasons that you said, uh, they dismantled, they effectively dismantled our childhood. <laughs> right. Uh, but the Madoff mess also entailed losing Shea Stadium. And that's where I have a conflict in deciding, you know, picking one over the other. Because, let's face it, those Madoff mm-hmm. years were ruinous. And we also lost Shea. So, you know, I'm a little conflicted. Good, Sam. Take it away. Last word. Uh, how do you feel about that, though, Rich? Oh, well, uh, end with that one. Send it over to me, uh-huh. don't you? <laughs> 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 so, uh, 
No, I, uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I obviously didn't go through the seventies and the eighties, but I'd, I'd have to say that, that this, it, we're still feeling the ramifications of both. Um, and both have to do with one another. So it's a weird correlation that I'm about to make. And, and the, the movies that I'm going to bring up are much more positive, but it's like, a New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> except much worse, much, much, much worse, where, you know, un- unfortunately, you know, as, as in, in this way, like, as devastating as the Madoff era is to as great as the Empire Strikes Back is, you know, it doesn't happen without the 70s version of, of it, which in the Star Wars case of the New Hope, uh, and in your, you know, our case, it's, we're talking about the uh, uh, the M. Donald Grant era. So, and trying to come out of that. So, yeah, like like it's it's just it's hard to to pinpoint. But like you said, we I I'm not sure which one. I think that the other one could have been saved with the proper uh, direction. Unfortunately, we've gotten the Fred Wilpon direction, and this is you know. It, as, as of now, we're getting a, a, a D minus, if you will. <laughs> so, you know, keep on trucking, Jeff and and Fred, and uh, we're we're pulling for you only because we're pulling for the Mets. And with that, I will send it over to Rich for our last word. My last word is stopper. Um, so, as we know, stopper refers to your ace or a pitcher on your staff who comes out to stop a losing streak. And while it generally refers to one person, I'm going to say the Mets need to need to be a team of stoppers right now. Um, three and six over the last nine is not good. I'm still okay with the 15 and eight record, but I don't like three and six over the last nine. Um, I need Degrom to be a stopper tomorrow night. I need Cespedes to play a role in that. I need Jay Bruce and all those guys. Just don't let this continue, fellas. You know this. Don't let this good start go down the toilet. Let's be stoppers collectively and not let the losing perpetuate. Three and six, okay, it happens. The Yankees had their, their bad run earlier this month. It happens, okay, fine. Let's just stop this crap right here and get back to winning. Mike? Good one, Rich. Stopper. Love that one. Uh, I'm going to go with comeback. I want to see Matt Harvey make a comeback. I want to see him finish on a positive note. He's a goner. I think we're all resigned to that. Uh, but finish well. I want to see him make a comeback. I got on him pretty pretty well tonight. Make a comeback, man. You can do this. Maybe not. That remains to be seen. But uh, invest yourself. And uh, be the dark knight. If for just one night. You know? That's it. Yeah, get that perfect game that we all always thought you were going to get in, in April of uh, 2013. And um, I'm going to take a cue from Rich with the whole stopper. Stop that boulder. Uh, it, the, the bullpen are the ones that need to be the stoppers here right now because they're the ones, unfortunately, it's, it's the reason why uh, we're three and six and it looks like there's a boulder ro- rolling down the hill is because of the bullpen right now, because Noah Syndergaard and Jacob DeGrom have been stoppers, but unfortunately the bullpen has not been able to handle it. Uh, 
Sonelia was almost there and unfortunately um, couldn't he gets a little lackadaisical, just like he did against Alex Gordon with the second quick pitch in a row. And I think Familia, maybe his issue sometimes is a, a lack of focus, and, and I can certainly uh, relate to that. But, you know, I'm I'm here trying to focus on criticizing Familia and talking about the Mets. And, unfortunately, I don't think Familia always focuses. Um, it's kind of maybe some way similar to – to what we're talking about with Matt Harvey and and losing your focus and and we all are trying to keep our focus in this adulthood and in this professional childhood as I, I like to call it <laughs> um, adulting that's why I like the word adulting this new millennial right, well, phrasing adulting I'm gonna use that um, tomorrow adulting I'm gonna go adulting adulting yeah I'm gonna go I'm I'm, I'm going adulting today. Um, but, you know, and it goes back to what we were talking about, the immaturity that Matt Hardy is showing. It's just sometimes you got to be the adult in the room, even if you don't like what has uh, transpired to lead you up to that moment. And unfortunately, I can definitely relate to being the child in the room and, and not handling things right. But sometimes when the going gets tough, you got to, you know, buckle up suck it all up and, and say, say la vie. That's why that phrase keeps coming up because here I am in Colorado, you know, looking for a change of pace in, in many ways, but not really expecting this specific type of change of pace. And I have to deal with it. And, you know, I'm not, I don't always handle it properly, but I think I'm handling it soundly. And these guys got to handle this stuff soundly, both Familia, who's had some some issues not handling his stuff off the field, uh, and Matt Harvey, who it hasn't been. We, we do know that he's a partier, but we had there hasn't been well documented, uh, it, it, except for that you know the hangover that he said he had a headache for. Um, you know this stuff needs to be tightened up, and 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 that's the bottom line. You got to keep focus, and because I'm being so hard on myself, or trying at least to keep my focus right now with so many things scattered around me. Um, that is what I implore both Familia and Harvey, but also the Mets to do right now. They're at 15-8, and eight, and look what happened to the 2015 team. They had a lot of injuries, but something, the focus wasn't completely there, and the 2018 Mets need to keep their focus. So stop that boulder, keep your focus, and let's go Mets. Everybody, thank you so much. Uh, guys, it's always been a, uh, always a pleasure. And, uh, you know, we're back in the episode number swing of things. So, uh, without further ado, good night, everybody. Let's go Mets. Good night. Good night. Let's go Mets. <laughs>